Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, we are so grateful for your amazing love for us. So much of it we don't even know or see. We ask, Lord God, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our eyes and our minds and our ears and our hearts to see more and more the Father's great love for us, his great desire for our healing and our restoration and our wholeness. We ask that you would open our eyes to see our Lord Jesus ever more clearly. Bend our wills to serve him ever more fully. Unite our hearts to love him ever more deeply. And it's in his mighty name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, good morning again. Uh, it's um, good to be together on this fourth Sunday of Epiphany. Just as a reminder, if you're not um, familiar with the season of Epiphany, it follows the season of Christmas, which celebrates the actual incarnation of Jesus, the actual incarnation of, of God into manhood. We were talking about this uh, quite a bit in the middle school girls confirmation class yesterday. And just a reminder of what a, what a marvel this is, uh, how stunning it is that he would do this. And then he would live his life and come to the, to come to the cross. And at the cross, do an, a universe of good work. And then move us into the resurrection in this new universe of, it's just stunning, a different sermon. So if you want to, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, because that's where we'll be this morning. The Epiphany then is the season where we honor and look for Jesus to continually be revealing himself in the scriptures and in the story of his life and his teaching and his healing, but also in our own hearts and minds, we look for an epiphany ourselves uh, every year. We look for an epiphany in our own hearts and minds. We look for him to be revealing himself ever more fully, ever more completely, ever more deeply, ever more intensely to us. We're not just observers. We're not third-party observers to the epiphany. We are first-party participants in the epiphany. And so here we are in Luke chapter 4. Um, and we will, last week, we were at this wonderful place where Jesus had moved from, if you will, Satan's temptation of revealing, okay, from revealing um, his identity by acts of power. So Satan was, reveal your identity, but do it in a way that, that we'll all see and we'll all appreciate, right? Do it in some big, huge, powerful way. Show us who you are. If you are the son of God, he says, for two out of the three temptations. And Jesus shuts him down. Jesus will not reveal his identity. He will not reveal the character of God by these overt shows of power. He then goes around in sort of, frankly, the northern part of Israel, uh, kind of the backwoods part, preaching in the synagogues and in the local congregations. And he comes to his hometown. And he goes to, to be with his hometown people in his hometown place of worship. And it is there, under the word of God, and amongst the humble people of God, that he reveals his identity. And he reveals it by quoting Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1 and 2, and then parts of Isaiah 58 and verses 6. And he proclaims, he does it, uh, it's called a chiasm, but you can sort of think of it as, as concentric circles. So the outside circle, he says twice that he has come to proclaim liberty to captives, pardon to prisoners, and he has come to send them out in liberty. So these two ideas, the outer circle, he has come to proclaim and to bring actual liberty to actual prisoners and people in, in oppression. Uh, now, this would have resonated with the people of God there in Nazareth, right? Um, who were they under the oppression of? Rome. Rome. 
They would not have liked this a bit. It's very possible. We only had the slightest of hints. History gets this way. Uh, we only had the slightest of hints, but Nazareth was established maybe a couple hundred years before, um, um, before Jesus came to preach. Uh, and they were settlers, very interesting. They came into the north and established themselves in a place that wasn't theirs, right? And so this idea of perhaps, perhaps, we don't know, we don't know. We do have to have some inference here. We'll be careful with inferences. Um, but perhaps there was a bit of a, a settler's mentality, right? Um, a, a carefulness, um, a being on the lookout all the time, a, um, um, maybe a defensiveness. But it's been a couple of hundred years, so that may or may not have been part of, part of their identity at that point. But certainly it's inter interesting history. But they would have understood this idea of freedom, for sure, from those being captive. Next circle in is this idea of, um, this idea of, what was it? <laughs> is it a text? I have no idea, right? Oh yeah, yeah, sorry, good news to the poor. Um, good news to the poor and the year of Jubilee. Um, I'm already thinking ahead down further downstream in the sermon. That's the problem of, it's like the football player that's already thinking about running with the ball before he catches it, right? Um, and so, <laughs> and doesn't get anywhere with it then. But um, so here we are, he's, he's talking about then uh, proclaiming good news to the poor and the oppressed and this year of Jubilee, when people's debts and the, the, maybe the way they had to sell their family property or give away their goods are now restored to them. So there's a restoration of the poor. And that dead center is this amazing act of compassion where the blind are healed and the blind are given sight. So these promises he has given, and this is now the kind of God Israel has. This is the kind of Messiah he is. He is not the one who's going to be revealing his identity via these great acts of power that Satan wanted him to do. He is the one who reveals his identity by going to scripture as the one who will indeed set free the captives, bring good news to the poor, and heal the blind. This is the kind of God and the kind of Messiah he is revealing himself to be. And then last week, we talked about how um, texts like this are spoken to um, the, the Nazarenes and for us, and often at two different levels. And one we forget, being sort of 21st century North Americans and human beings, uh, we live pretty tightly within our own skins, don't we? And so we tend to think that whatever the scripture says is like a word from God to me, to Matt, right? Um, and, and there's a, a piece of that that's absolutely true. Um, because the people of God are made of the persons of God. And so, the, so the, the personal message of the scriptures of God, we do actually do very well to appropriate and to bring into ourselves. And so last week, we sort of sat under these promises of God and, and, and personally asked ourselves, all right, Lord, where is my brokenness? Where do I need freedom from captivity? Where do I need to hear good news given to the poor? Where do I need my blind eyes opened by you? And so we asked the Holy Spirit to speak us in a very personal way. Today, we're going to take that second piece and ask ourselves, what is God saying to the people of God? What is Jesus saying to the people of God? And we're going to work at it more and more from that angle. So with that set up, there's a lot of like sort of setting on the table that's going to happen this morning. We'll try to get to it pretty succinctly. But that, that's a beginning place, a beginning place. And so we, have, we come to this, um, this passage in verse 22, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Um, just that would be, if, you're, if, you're, if you like to read or if you're a fan of movies 
or really any kind of story that has to move along. Um, when, that, when, that, when that question hits, it will probably cause you to go, hmm, where is he going from here? Yeah, I wonder what's going on. Where is he gonna go from here? Um, is this a question of affirmation? As in, whoa, this is so sweet. Look at this young guy. Isn't this Joseph's son? We're so proud of him, right? Not really. No, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a totally appropriate response. Uh, we, I love when we celebrate um, our, our youth here and, we're, and we love them and we're happy for them. But I think the human being also knows, hmm, is this a statement of who does he think he is? Right? Isn't he Joseph's son? And so the, the story itself and the way that, that, um, that Jesus creates a story, this reality. I say story, but you know, when I say story, you know, I, I don't mean fable, right? I mean, we're, we're the, the recollections and the description of God and Jesus in, in, in his life. And so the, we have this moment where we say, hmm. And then indeed, it seems in verse 23 that Jesus makes a bit of a pivot. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So what, why did we go this, from this pivot of glorious promises to this sort of confrontational tone? We, we don't actually have the entire reason why, but we can, we can from the context, uh, we can begin to infer perhaps some of the realities of this. So first of all was, um, if it's possible that Nazareth uh, was a sort of a particularly uh, feeling like particularly maybe threatened or, um, or oppressed outpost of Israel in the northern part of her own country, then that might create a little bit of defensiveness in them. It might. It's also possible that this, this word to be, they marveled at his gracious words. Uh, when you go to the, the dictionary, the, the, the Greek dictionary, um, and you know, it isn't actually that hard to learn a little bit of Greek and figure out how to use a Greek dictionary, right? Um, Chris Stroop would be happy to teach you. <laughs> um, but if, it's really actually not that difficult, right? I mean, so a couple of months or a few weeks would, would, would get you on the road. But anyway, the dictionaries are very interesting. They give this, this uh, definition of to marvel, to be uh, astounded at, to glory in. And then in parens it says, whether for or against depends on the context. Whether for or against depends on the context. So we ask ourselves, did they marvel at his gracious words in ways that were for him? Or did they already have a sense that this was gonna be a bit of a dicey sermon and they were marveling at him in ways that were in some way against him? Both could fit the context, both could fit the context. The latter might help us explain the pivot a little better, but it doesn't have to, but it is interesting. It could be that Jesus simply knew their thoughts. This happens when he's preaching as well. The scriptures say he knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. So this could be also explain the pivot. Um, in addition, then, there's a third piece. Sometimes it feels like, you know, we're like micro-examining the text. And when we micro-examine it and take it to someplace like another universe, uh, then that's a problem. But there's also a close reading of the text that's important. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named George Saunders. Uh, called uh, uh, Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And if you want a glorious book that both uh, um, has great literature and also teaches you how to read great literature in, in this, it's, I'm enchanted, it's a wonderful book. Saunders is 
a little edgy at times, and his language can get a little salty. So fair warning, fair warning. Um, but it's a glorious book about a close reading of literature. And while this is, of course, the recollection of Jesus's life, it is also literature. It's also literature. Anyway, so uh, it are, most of the commentators note an interesting thing. The portions of, of Isaiah that Jesus quotes, um, 61 and from 58, he quotes the promises, but then he stops almost mid-stanza, right, in this, in this part of Isaiah, almost mid-stanza, and he doesn't quote the parts that, the, um, that talk about the destruction and the judgment of the Gentiles. Interesting. Interesting. So he quotes the promises, but he leaves out the pieces that, again, an outpost city might want to hear. Certainly that Israel wanted to hear. Israel, want, Israel understood in many regards that their, rec, their redemption was going to be the downcasting of the pagan nations. They were to be lifted up and the pagan nations were being brought down. This is quite clear. Um, and so it's interesting that Jesus, as he, as he preached from Isaiah, decided not to put in that part. That's important later on. So whatever the reason for the pivot, there is clearly a pivot. We've gone from these great promises to um, a bit of a cantankerous mood. And uh, yeah, is that this Joseph's son? At which point he says, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now we know where we get that proverb ourselves, don't we? Verse 24, but in truth, I, now then, eh, when Jesus says something, when he leads with something like this, like truly, truly, um, those who have ears to hear, listen. But in truth, that's a flag that says, really listen to this part. Okay, really listen to this part. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet, Eli the prophet Elisha, Elijah's successor. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now then, if, again, we may not remember those stories in much detail. I'll, I'll just spell them out for us a little bit here so we can sort of maybe hear what the people of God in Nazareth were hearing at that time. But certainly what we're about to hear is this, that the salve of the promises, remember of Isaiah, the salve of those promises, the healing, the goodness, the beauty, the strength, the favor of God. He seemingly is applying not to the people of God, but to the people outside the people of God. He's seemingly applying not to the people of God, but to those who are not the people of God. In truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. If you don't remember, Elijah has just confronted Ahab. He is one of the many bad kings of Israel. He is married to a bad lady named Jezebel who um, has promised to kill Elijah. And she tends to go through on these promises. Okay. And so Elijah, uh, sent by God, hightails it. Right Now God tells him to. He says, you need to get out of here. And I'm going to send you then 
um, actually outside, the, oh, and, and the famine is coming. He predicted the famine, um, which of course makes any king who, who, who wants to look good before his people a little nervous because when famines come, um, very rightly, the people look to the king to solve the problem or to be a part of the problem. This is throughout the scriptures. When God judges Israel, he starts with the king. So he, Ahab is rightly nervous. Jezebel is rightly uh, nervous. She is not rightly murderous, but um, she is rightly nervous. And so God sends him away and he sends him out of Israel to be fed by the ravens and fed by the brook, as you may remember. From there, though, he sends him then to Sidon. So uh, Elijah has just uh, defeated the priests of Baal and condemned the king of Israel, basically for being a Baal worshiper. And now God sends him to the land where they actually worship Baal. Lord, you are confusing sometimes. You are not easy to understand sometimes. And he sends him to this place where he comes across a widow who is um, literally she and her son and the scriptures say, are on the verge of dying of starvation. The famine has come, and they're on the verge of dying of starvation. And Elijah's a smart guy. He knows this. He sees her collecting sticks. She tells him, this is our last meal. We're done. And he says, well, uh, share it with me. That's a little cheeky, right? Your last meal before you die, and you need to now divvy it up with a third person? And yet he knows, and God knows, that this is actually God coming to this woman in this land of Baal. His presence is coming into the land of Baal to this woman, this very poor woman on the verge of death, and he is coming to her to bring healing, to bring the promises of Isaiah 61. So interesting. So interesting. And then he talks about Naaman, the Syrian general. Uh, so Naaman is a general in Syria, very high-ranking, confidant of the king. The king leans on his arm when they go in to worship their God. And, and Naaman then has leprosy. Bad news. Bad news. Naaman has leprosy. But uh, God's amazing uh, providence and redemption, this in no way justifies taking prisoners in war. But he has a servant who is Jewish. Now then, it's possible that she applied for the job. It's possible. It's more likely that she was captured in war and made his servant, right? That could fit the context better. But I guess she could have heard that there was a job in Syria, not Israel, with a pagan general, and she put him for the job. But not likely, but not likely. So she's probably been captured in war. She's in his household and she says, master. So she doesn't sort of say, I know who could fix this problem, but right? Stinks to be him. It's not what she says. She's in the service of this pagan general, and she says, Master, I know someone who can heal you. There's a prophet where I came from, and he can heal you. Now, Naaman, uh, all the way along, resists doing this, but the people who care for him uh, convince him to go to Israel to seek Elisha, who sort of insultingly doesn't even talk to him. He sends the doorman out to talk to him. So a general, right? in one of the strongest countries in the region, and uh, he won't even talk to him. And then he tells him to go bathe in this like little mud puddle um, compared to the great rivers that came out of these mountains in, near Damascus. And he won't do it, but the people who love him and care for him convince him to, and he is healed, and he is healed. 
So God's power is brought to bear on a military leader in an enemy country who has come to ask for help. So interesting. So interesting. So this gives us some thoughts into, so Jesus is offering the people of God some I thinking into God, some insights into God's thinking and of the faith that the people of God were to imitate. So at their best, they did do this. They did imitate this kind of faith. At their best, they did humble themselves before God. At themselves, they did their best. They really did try to live into the reason they were created. Go back to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. So God said, all right, you guys, I'm going to create, I'm going to make a covenant with you guys. And the purpose for you is going to be to bless everybody else. I'm making a covenant with you so that your identity will be to bless, your identity and your actions will be to bless all the other nations of the world. Now, we know that Israel got pretty consistently sideways on that. Um, that is, is often the case. They said he has blessed us because we are awesome. <laughs> right? Um, and they are scumbags. That's why he's blessed us. Um, to which God has to say, oh, okay, back to Abraham. Let's remember, I blessed you so that you would be then a blessing to the nations. And this, this comes through very wonderfully in these words of Jesus. So God's thinking. What might we infer by way of God's character and his thinking in, in, in this, this, this time when Jesus is speaking to the people of God? First of all, it's fun to see how comprehensive these stories are that God brings together, that Jesus brings together. A woman and a man. Both. One impoverished. One rich and powerful. Both God comes to them. One humble all the way through. One initially quite arrogant. Right? A recalcitrant. And yet eventually obedient. The key is that they were both non-Jews, pagans, worshiping other gods. And God dealt miraculously with them. And then Jesus has to point out that there were lots of people with leprosy and there were lots of widows, but he dealt with them, which is to say he dealt with them and not with the people of God. I have to tell you, I was tempted to preach on a different passage today. But the word, he, he, the, the passage is that he dealt with these pagans, one broken and humble, one um, rich and arrogant, but they were pagans. And he dealt with them miraculously and not the rest of Israel. What was it about their faith then that Israel needed to see and hear and learn? Well, first, they humbly received what and who God had sent them. They humbly received what and who God had sent to them, irrespective of their other allegiances. Irrespective of their other allegiances. They received the miraculous work of God sent to them. They received Elijah and Elisha in his power. The question being then, will these people receive God was what is sending them by way of Jesus? Will they receive his word? Will they receive him as king? Will they receive him as Lord? Will they receive him as prophet? Will they receive him at least as well as these pagans did? There's the question that hangs in the air. 
When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their own town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, this isn't like a kid rolling down a hill in joy, right? This is throw him off the cliff so that he would die. And if he wasn't dead, so that they could easily kill him. He'd at least be beat up enough that he'd be easy to kill. But passing through their midst, he went away. He went down to Capernaum. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word was spoken with authority. It would appear that this people of God at this moment could not at least in their pride, perhaps in their ethnic sort of tribalism, that they could not receive what Jesus brought. One commentator points out, though, that we have the hints of the redemption, of the goodness of God proceeding irrespective, because Jesus walks through them. The word of God will have its way. It will not be stopped either by enemies or by his own people who won't receive him. And so at the moment, at least, they appear stuck. They appear stuck. They appear stuck in their tribalism. They appear stuck in their fear, unable to hear what God is telling them, offended when he points out to them what their very purpose actually is, to be a blessing to the nations. Let us pray. We dare not um, ignore this text. We dare not ignore this text. We dare not ignore this text. But I will also go and happily say for the next couple minutes that we also have um, the rest of the text. And so when we ask ourselves, does it look like we or somebody we know or the big they that is out there are stuck? Is this the end of the sermon, the end of our praying. It's not. It's not. Because these same, uh, the people of God, we don't know if it was the same people in Nazareth, but it would be fun if it included them. Wouldn't it be great if some of these individuals maybe were in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost? Wouldn't it be marvelous if they heard the various languages being preached by the power of the Holy Spirit and people coming to, to, to their God from other nations, wouldn't it be marvelous? Wouldn't it be great if one of them then went, wait a minute. A few years ago, that guy Jesus was preaching, and he said, hey, I see what's happening now. Wouldn't that be marvelous if the picture got filled out that way? And wouldn't it be marvelous then if they responded and were sort of the people being described in Acts chapter 2? So continuing... Um, Fear came upon every soul. Wonders and signs were done amongst them. Many were added to them daily. They continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They held all things in common. What if from that posture of anger, wanting to kill Jesus, they were now ready to turn their own lives up side down because of his love and the power of the spirit the people of god are doing that whether those individuals in nazareth we don't know but it's fun to imagine and what are the opportunities offered offered to us or us personally us as a group us as our tribe us as they whatever level 
what a great opportunity is for to continue to make this move. I'm not saying we're not making this move, but to go even deeper, to go even deeper from sort of this, this focused set, focus on ourselves to then hear God saying, I've created the people of God. That would mean I've created Holy Trinity. I have created you so that you would be a blessing to the nations. I created you for a purpose, and your purpose is to be a blessing to the nations. And in the power of the Spirit, you could look something like this. In fact, I'll say in the power of the Spirit, we do look something like this. I see it all the time around here. I see all the time people sacrificing for one another, sharing their goods, breaking bread together, coming to the table. I see it all the time. Please, Lord God, drive it deeper. Thank you for this great gift and make it more. Indeed, then, the word of God went to the church in Philippi. And Paul wrote this outrageous, these outrageous statements. They're outrageous. Unless, of course, we are to be a people who are created to heal and minister to those around us and to look like Jesus. If that's his purpose, it's not so outrageous. Actually, it's still outrageous, but we'll hear it a little bit. Let this mind be in you, which was in the, in the Messiah, Jesus. Your, your mind, you like the mind that was in Jesus. If any affection and mercy, if you have known any affection of mercy, any fellowship of the Spirit, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. By being like-minded. Now then, I'm a Cowboys fan. I've only been here 20 years, so I'm becoming a Broncos fan. So we may not be like-minded in that way. But can we be like-minded that we are sinners saved by grace? That we are a people who belong to Jesus before we belong to anybody else? That we want to be filled with his spirit every day and more like him all the time? That we are created to be a blessing to those around us? We can be like-minded on that. Being uh, the same, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. We don't have to stop with the folks in Nazareth in Luke 4. We need to know it. We need to hear it. We need to own it. But from there, we need to move on to Acts chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, there is good news for us, brothers and sisters. There is good news for us. And this is our call. This is our heritage. This is our reality. Amen? Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, we do love you. We are so grateful for you. Thank you that we have the safety of your love to be challenged in these ways. Thank you that we can rest in you even while you challenge us that we can be imperfect in you today, even as you move us into greater and deeper and more beautiful things and places. Please do your work. We will love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.